Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, I am joined with Mr. Dave Van Hook, and uh, he has been a mentor of mine in mainly the world of soap baking. And I thought I'd bring him on because my goal for this podcast is to interview as many folks as I can and have them tell their stories. And I think the reason why I have Dave on right now is because he's a huge part of these gatherings and he knows a lot of people and he's taught a lot of people soap making. And Dave, thanks so much for being on here. And I want to hear your story. So thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a joy to be here. Good. What, uh, What's been going on with you? What did you just get doing? Get done doing? Um, we got done doing Sky Earth. Yeah. Um, smaller gathering. It's a gathering that's growing and kind of finding its way in the world. Um, I think Natureversity, uh, for this gathering, I said I'm going to go camp the same way and same place I did last year. In the first couple of days, I thought, nah, maybe I should have camped down by the rest of the camp and then natureversity showed up so i got to listen to all the people that you brought um got to do a class with them and the kids and i think that's the highlight of this year it's hard to wrangle kids from five to nine and teach them soap making because you're running around paranoid that they're going to get burnt or hurt themselves or step on the fire or something like that, or just not pay attention. Um, but when there's, I don't know, I wouldn't call them instructors. I'm not sure. Facilitators. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a word I'm learning in gatherings this year. Um, really good facilitators. So when you have people that can facilitate the people management, it's a lot easier just to do the mechanics of making soap. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. And then um, every night when I got to go to bed, I sit there and looked at a lineup of cardboard boxes of soap that had been made. And that's my intention is to get people to make soap. And... Um, it's always fun to be around you in particular. Um, I think probably the main reason I'm here is the five acknowledgements that you have. Done a lot of work in the past and various times in life tried to figure out, um, you know, how to make things better. And so with what you do with kids and those acknowledgements or agreements, I can tell you from being this old and this screwed up that those are important things. So by raising children that way, you're doing what I want to do. I don't make soap to make money. I've yet to go to a gathering and have enough people take a class and sell soap that I make money. And if I get close to that, I mean, there are other larger gatherings where it would be really easy to do that because of the number of people that take classes in their longer gatherings. For some reason, if I get to that point, I always just start giving soap away because I don't want to... 
Uh, I don't want to commit to doing a business. But you, I think, come to every class you take and every instructor that you are involved with, like, um, I'm an old man. I get stuck in what I think is the right way to go, and then I have young men like you challenge me. Mm. Had a guy challenge me about, uh, I'm a stickler about using essential oils, and he said, and you know, I tell a story about what I did with rose oil for a couple of friends and how expensive it was, and he said, how environmentally friendly are you being? I mean, you say you use only essential oils, and that's great. But what does it take to create mm. those essential oils? How much land does it take? And so it pushed me to find balance. Normally, before this year, the past 12 months, not just the calendar year, but the past 12 months, I have never used a stick blender in making soap outside my house, except for... When Chris came along. <laughs> and I messed up hundreds of dollars worth of oil on accident. No. Uh, well, you may have done that, but every time there's a movement forward, mm -hmm. there's a price to pay. So I wasn't willing to pay the price of just going out and spending 125 bucks on a battery-operated blender, take the hit to my reputation that I wasn't being as primitive as I could be and hand stirring stuff. But, um, you took that risk. You paid the price for the rest of us. Now more people are willing to take soap classes because it's shifted from a four hour to four and a half hour class to a two hour class. Yeah. And I can actually do a better class. Yeah. Because instead of watching the pot, making sure people are stirring and not just paying attention, we can talk about the history of soap, where soap came from, how it happened, what's the oldest soap, where's the cool places they still make it that way in the Middle East. Um, we can have those conversations and at, people can ask more questions. And we still do the fundamentals of making soap and can get them started where they can go home mm -hmm. and actually, you know, give a handout how to make it hot processing crock pots because that's what I think is the best way to do it right now. But we do something closer to what they're going to do at home, which is actually an improvement. Yeah. Um, do me a favor. When you talk, get this mic close to your mouth. You can... Okay. There you go. All right. Yeah. So a <laughs> lot better, a lot better. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> real quick for those of people who are listening to this and you may be first time listening to this, this concept of what we call gatherings. We keep talking about gatherings. We mentioned this thing called sky earth. Let's go back a little bit and talk about what is a gathering. And, um, I know it as, and, and maybe you can correct the history here, but I knew it as an organization that were taking kids, um, Oh, I, I guess it first started with archaeologists and anthropologists who were gathering, and then they started taking kids to it, and then that's kind of how it became this family collective where you share skills of the old with each other. It doesn't matter what skill it is, you know, um, even... Yeah. 
as uh, unique as you know horse whispering and water. Uh, what is it called? Dousing, witching, witching, water witching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even things like that. I've seen teach uh, taught at these gatherings. So what they are, I guess, is a way to skip the survival school and get right to the unique skill that you want. Because I think it's kind of like a Boy Scout mentality. Think about Boy Scouts like this. You go, you join a troop. They're like, okay, we got to do all these things and all these things. and then, But you're just like, I just want to make a bow, man. I just want to make some bows and arrows, shoot some bows and arrows. And they're like, well, you know, it's going to take, you know, the Weebelows and the little bear cubs and all these different things. And eventually you'll get to this rank. And then we're at, and that's how survival schools are these days. They go, all right, we're going to start with this psychology of survival, which I think is important. I think if you're going there for that unique experience, but gatherings, it's like, I just want to make a clay pot. <laughs> Boom. Right. There's Kelly Magleby making clay pots with you. I just want to learn to make soap. There's Dave. And that's what I feel the gatherings are unique for. So for those of you listening out there, Sky Earth, uh, Winter Count, Rabbit Stick, um, Between Two Rivers, what other the other ones out fire there? Fire to Fire. Fire to Fire. There's, yeah. They're all across the country. So how yep. did they, what is your history and how did they get started? My history is basically um, Winter Count when it's, when Dave Westcott still ran Winter Scott, Winter Count. Um, <clears throat> and when did Winter Count start? Um, now about 30 years ago. Okay. So it started with Westcott and some other guys doing rabbit stick. And my understanding is that, um, it was instructors getting together to share skills in the beginning. And every time you go to rabbit stick, if you're at the instructors meeting, you'll get, uh, a count on how many instructors versus people and the intention there is to have a lot of instructors so that there's always somebody that will work with you on whatever your project is one-on-one. You get one-on-one attention. And it's not like um, symposiums or large classrooms where you're disconnected from the instructor. It's a lot of a community of doing the things the old way not so much that <clears throat> to be doing it the old way, but to explain how it grew. And I think a lot of times what our culture wants to do now is find the latest hack on how to do something. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm all about that too. Yeah. Personally. And, yeah. And so what the gatherings were was to find out how they did it before they had a hack. So you've got, this is all you have. You're in wherever, Utah, Michigan, Alabama, New York, California, doesn't make any difference. These are what you have. And it has that kind of regional flavor. There's all the books about plants in the Rockies, plants in the Midwest, plants in the far south. So it tries to help you get along where you're at and just be not really survival from my perspective, but uh, be capable of getting along and doing things. Fire Making fire is one of the three, so to speak, pillars of the gatherings. So they want you to learn the basic minimum fire, hand drill fire, bow drill fire. But at the same time, <clears throat> they acknowledge the fact that if you're in a real survival situation, 
the odds of you being able to go out and find the necessary pieces to make a good hand drill set or a good bow drill set is slim and none. And if you're in a real survival situation, you may be injured, you may be um, lost. Yeah. So you're going to be, and cold. If you need a fire, you're going to be cold. So they want you to learn all about fire. So can you go and make it with flint and steel? Can you make it with flint and steel? Can you use a cotton ball and Vaseline? Can you use a cotton ball and a little bit of ash? Can you use a, a bamboo plow? So they want you to learn all about um, surviving or thriving in any environment that you show up in. Yeah. And you know what's <clears throat> cool about the gathering is, is that it's almost... Uh, it's curated. It's like a museum of instructors and they come and they share. And I, I feel like you're getting the best of the best, you know, and we, I, I don't think people like Dave Westcott and Josh and everybody else who helps run these gatherings. I don't think that they would just, yeah, I guess, you know, you can teach class. I think they really look for like, what's the quality of product that you're making at this point? You know, how many classes have you taught prior to this experience? So that you're getting the best of the best when you get to go to these gatherings, which is so cool. Um, when was your very first gathering? 2013. 2013. Yes. Yeah, so down 2013. Yeah. And that back in Maricopa? Yep. Yeah. Way back. Yeah. And it, um, the landowner in Maricopa was already family for me before I heard anything. And really, yeah, I had met him uh, what in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, why did why did it move? Um, I don't really know all the details on that. Yeah, um, but. He was a firefighter, and my brother-in-law and buddy happened to be, at one time, his chief, mm. his battalion chief. So I had met him before and known him for a long time. So it was really cool after a long time um, to say, you remember me. And, yeah. And I think that made a big deal for me because it made it more like community. And that's yeah. what gatherings uh, are to me is the community. I came there. I wasn't supposed to be at the gathering um, because I just had a bone marrow transplant yeah. less than a year before that, so I wasn't supposed to be out in public. I definitely wasn't supposed to be out around porta-potties. Oh, no. Wasn't supposed to be around open public kitchens or be at a picnic or be at a park, and I went there and... Um, uh, I attribute that to um, a big part of why I'm still here. Yeah, community. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, when I went and then um, offered to teach soap making um, to Dave Westcott, I think in the back of his mind and some of the other structures, instructors' mind were continuing to progress and grow mm -hmm. so soap making is not really it's more of a pioneer skill and probably more fits at sky earth than it it does at um winter count or rabbit stick or fire to fire 
but it's also shows a step in um, how we progressed in hygiene. Yeah. And that someday, hopefully the gatherings will grow to um, be more about pioneer skills or skills that we can use today if we just all take off and go out in the woods and what are you going to do if you need soap? Mm -hmm. And so hopefully it's a drive towards that. And gatherings, it's hard to get people to come, I think, to primitive skills gatherings. Because if you haven't been there, you don't know that it's a whole lot more than rubbing two sticks together. Right. You don't know you're going to learn how to make pottery. You're going to learn how to make, or, or why some pottery in this area had a lot of um, decoration to it. Only because the people lived in a place that had an abundant food source, so they had more leisurely time. And there were other places, like where I live in the deserts in Arizona, where they didn't have a lot of decorations on their pottery because <laughs> they were trying to find food, you know, 23 right. hours a day. So you get to learn all that stuff. And um, self-reliance, I think, is a big part of it. And they want you to know the whole story. Um Having been a sailor when I was a kid, uh, Dave Westcott making um, a ditty bag that a sailor was. Well, I had a ditty bag when I was in the Navy. It was a canvas bag. I carried my personal junk in. But I also learned that the ditty bag for sailors, which were beyond primitive skills, and same time people were making soap like I make soap, they did that, and that was basically their resume. It showed how they knew how to tie canvas, how they patch canvas, how to tie the knots, and it was basically a resume. Wow. So there's a lot of things out there. Um, I don't understand why people seriously don't look at the soap pot I use more because I preach about using um, stainless steel as much as you can and heavy-duty plastic if you have to and avoid glass and... All the things that you can't use. Oh, I noticed your soap pot. Yeah, see, but Gas you're iron. different, and but <laughs> and people it's don't know that kept well. I want you to go after this. I want you to go look at my cast iron. And you're going to shame me. <laughs> you just got to tell me how to fix it. I know that you see, it's a giant, giant bowl, and I. It's not like my cast iron in my kitchen. I can take care of those, but I, I figured, what have I done to this thing? But. Uh, yeah, we'll go out and take a look at it. But I like what you said about that ditty bag. Um, that makes me think of a time in somebody told me about carpenters. So when you show up to do a job, your toolbox that you carried your tools in, that was your resume. Yeah. And so I think going back as far back as we can go, like the things that we crafted were an instant reflection perhaps of ourselves and our ability to commit to something to see it through to the end um to really pour ourselves into something and beyond the skills at these gatherings i mean i think we're all coming there collectively because we want to like learn stuff like basketry but the last time i was doing a felting class um i was with naomi and it was just about talking to all those people who were felting and just hearing their stories and how did you get here what what, what brought you to primitive skills gatherings and then hearing just how I'm a teacher or I'm actually a musician and I'm just taking a break in between cities or I'm a part of some organization that does master naturalist training or whatever brought them there. It's just so cool. And then they're hooked. Yeah. I think once you go, man, I, I have not missed winter count in four, five years now since I've started yeah. going. I haven't missed a sky earth. 
Uh, I've never been to Fire to Fire or uh, Rabbit Stick, but um, yeah, I, I want to go. And I'm just super eager to continue sharing this wisdom of skills, no matter what they are, whether it's primitive or kind of pioneer and all that. I think it's neat. It, it's great brain training. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to say it. Because you can sit in a group of people and um, rather than be nervous and awkward, you have something to do with your hands and actually concentrate on something. Mm. So you're not in your brain thinking about, is it okay to say this? Should I say this? <laughs> you know, who are these strange people that are here? Wait a minute. That guy is like wearing a buckskin jacket and that woman's wearing a cardigan. This is not the same homogenous group of people but when you're busy trying to learn something and you're in a group of people you have something to do that occupies that part of your brain that gets busy and distracts you and i think it makes you more open to see who's sitting across from you yeah and to see who else is in the group and it's a great place to find different people from different walks of life um yeah, you get to see some really unique people, and then you find out that they're really not that much different than you no, are, exactly. and they're all there for the same reason. Yeah. And it's it's hard to go. There's a balance of being there to learn and having um, the overall intent of learning skills without a regimented instruction. Without a bunch of regimented rules. Yeah. Each instructor has their own flavor. The first project I ever did was make a, comp a capote with Mike Powell. So at, um, his job in life was as a juvenile corrections officer. Okay, that's a whole different kind of person than Dave Westcott. Yeah. Um, or... Brad Wade. I mean, they all come from different backgrounds. You know, when you get people that are instructors that are living in downtown Denver and living off the grid, that's a different mindset from somebody like Hugh Vales. It's um, off doing horse whispering and stuff. Yeah. So it's set up as a place to go learn a lot of different schools. And there's not only just room for the students, there's room for the instructors and that benefits the students. And most learning places that you go to aren't set up that way. So it's a real nice shift to have that. Yeah. <clears throat> I just enjoy it because it gets me away from the, I don't want to call it monotony of life, but it really like disrupts the flow of my life when I go out there. Cause I'm camping for five, six, seven days. Um, you know, there's not, flushable toilets and showers and all these things. But at the same time, like I feel like that in and of itself is another layer to this big onion of gatherings, which is how do you, how do you take care of yourself hygienically when camping for that long, you know? And, but it's, it's like a fun task. It's like, uh, you know, cause there's classes out there and they're teaching you things like, Oh, these are the twigs and berries and different things or not berries necessarily, but these are twigs, branches, perhaps roots, licorice roots, things like that. That'll help your teeth when you're in the back country. These are the branches that are more bristly in nature in their, you know, broken up and chewed. Um, and so I like learning all that stuff. And then I feel like 
you get to actually apply what you did the year before. Let's an example would be you made a gourd bowl, right, with the gourd lady from hell, and uh, shout out to her, she's amazing. And you bring that gourd bowl back the next year, or maybe even you made it on Monday or Tuesday, and by Wednesday or Thursday you're using it in your cooking. You know, maybe you made a yep. spoon um, with Tim Swanson out there at Wentware Account, and now you're you getting your gourd bowl and your spoon. You yep. made say, soap with Dave. You know, you might go put a bathing suit on and wash your body somewhere. And so I love that it's it's applicable to people beyond like I'm learning something and that's it. You know, it's like throwing axes. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to go learn this. But how, what, when are you going to start throwing axes like regularly? You know, mm-hmm. but on a camping trip, you can pick up that spoon, that bowl. You can pick up a clay pot. You can go out, you know, and I guess then the question is how often are you going camping? But yeah, I love the practical application of all these skills it yeah the thing is is we go out there sometimes you're by a river sometimes you're not and it's kind of a way of peeling people back from what's really important um you know being the soap guy um how you smell (laughs) is something that i think about so I get people that come in class and say, oh, oh, I'd never use anything with beef tallow or animal fat. And I am not, hear me now, I'm not a big fan of lard and I don't use lard in my soap. But I do enjoy beef tallow because it makes a better soap. It adds a hardness to the bar that the only other oil that does that really well or in the same fashion is palm oil, which is... You know, a lot of rainforests have been destroyed to make palm farms. But tallow in and of itself, there's reasons why I like it on my skin or anybody's skin. Um, and I asked people, said, I never would do that. And I said, okay, go to your local grocery store, your pharmacy, and look at all, or go to your medicine cabinets. Look at all the products that you have and find out if anyone says tallow weight. And a lot of them do. And that's a beef byproduct. And we spend all our time, they keep us going from one of the next best things. So when I was a kid, cocoa butter was in everything suntanning product, right? Cocoa butter's past. Um, There's palm oil. I still talk about how I think olive oil by the Italians, the Greeks, and the Spanish were the greatest marketing scam in the world (laughs) because of Castile soap. And, it, you know, for centuries, those people have been doing it, and it doesn't make the best soap. I have Italian relatives. Shoot me. I don't care. (laughs) So, but um, they keep us going from one thing to another. I grew up with castor oil as something that your grandmother gave you when you had an upset stomach, or she might have been mad at you. And it cleaned you out. Uh, it was used to um, induce labor in women a hundred years ago. Um, I use it in soap to make bubbles. You can use this much, but not that much. You can use more if you're making a shaving bar, and it has an intention. But you can learn about what does what, and that cuts down on what you need. So, you know, there's Gathering Guy, Mac Manis. Shout out to Mac, Soap for Life. Please donate over in Laos. He makes a simple soap, one oil soap. 
what I've learned from working with him is that they only use one oil and no essential oils, no fragrance oils, because their primary concern is hygiene. Getting kids through life without getting dysentery and dying of dysentery and dehydration. However, their life is so simple and they're so removed in rural mountains that to have anything, any small amount of essential oils, especially something like tea tree that's antibacterial and antifungal, would be the best to use for them. They wouldn't be able to eat because it would be so overpowering because all that stuff's removed from their world. Not removed, it's never been there. So we're constantly trying to cover up the smells that we have, especially naturally, and then covering up the smells of the other people who have a different thought of what smells good. And you'll always find yourself somewhere in a conversation about the person with the wrong deodorant or the cologne lady that you think dumps it on with the bucket or the person that puts on the makeup with a trowel, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> and, and, and we've done that. And gatherings get us back to looking at life simply. Then you have more time to spend with people the people you love, the people you want to be around making a difference instead of making cash. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it brings a, it brings me to something I want, I would love to hear you tell the story of, which is like, what is soap? How did it get started? I have this book over there on the shelf. Um, it's called um, Who Ate the First Oyster? And nice. it's a good book, but it's about the world's firsts. And there is a chapter on there. It says who made the world's first soap. And the way, the reason I like the book is because he explains history in the form of a 24-hour period. So, you know, he's saying, um, I don't know, four minutes to midnight in the time of a day, right? So we're getting almost, that's four minutes ago. That's how long ago soap was made, you know? So he's looking at around like a twelve thousand year period, and so about, or maybe no, maybe it's twenty four thousand year period. I don't know. He explains it all in the book, but I but I really like that because I could understand history so much better. Um, he explains things like who was the first murder mystery that we were ever fascinated with. You know, we have all these murder shows, which obviously it's Utsi, you know, the Ice Man from the Alps. And uh, but anyway, he he talks about soap being about forty eight hundred years old, and maybe you can enlighten us further on what you know about it, because I know you teach a lot of soap making classes, and I'm sure you share history of how it came to be. So, do you want to tell us about it? So, how it came to be would probably be specifically from what gatherings about hunters and gatherers. So. The first thing you have to take away from soap is bubbles. Bubbles are not necessary. They're a Western European, American kind of cultural thing. We see bubbles, we think that makes things clean. Or at least makes it fun with like bubble bath for kids. There are a lot of plants all around the world that have sapons in them. Those plants, if you used them and had dirty hands you would have cleaner hands after you use them. The oldest soap that I'm aware of is somewhere between two and 3,000 years old. Um, there are certain conditions where animal fats, particularly beef, is the only thing I can testify to, is a very stable oil. 
So mixed with potash or um, hardwood ashes, water to turn that into lye, I think soap, besides plant soaps with sapons, um, like yucca from Arizona, so there's a in the leaves you can get sapons, in the root system you can get sapons, and somewhere in digging and working around those pants, plants, people saw a difference. Somebody was paying attention. That's where soap came from. Somebody was paying attention. You had an open fire. They were cooking uh, an animal, whatever kind, most likely right before the winter time. The animal had a lot of body fat. They're using hardwood to make the fire. It rains. The fat mixes with the water and the ashes, and you see clean rocks. Mm. So it wasn't, nobody saw, to the best of my knowledge, nobody saw a bunch of bubbles. Nobody rubbed anything together. Um, This may be dangerous to say, but we live in, say, a Judeo-Christian culture. So... Um, the Israelites were doing animal sacrifices. Other people were doing animal sacrifices. And it, it talks um, in historical religious docu- documents about the sweet smelling of fat. Mm. So up until the last couple hundred years, fat's actually been good. You know, we know our bodies need fat, and we've got that a little bit twisted up now. But fat drips. When it drips, if it mixes with the hardwood ash and a little bit of water, you've got soap. Yeah. And so somebody figured that out. Then they took a whole bunch of hardwood ash, threw it in a pot, threw in some water, and then threw in a bunch of fat. And they cooked it. Then the next step from that, so you start with plants, and then you've got animals and ash, and then you cook it and then and that makes really a more of a paste then you do something that um you go from potassium hydroxide potash to soda ash you and they still do this today they make it with potash and then they wash it as it's cooking with salt water Mm. and the salt adds the hardness to it you can talk to soap makers across the country and people say, hey, can you make me a salt bar? And a salt bar is really great, especially if you have oily skin or depending on how you make it as an exfoliant, but it'll really dry out your skin and it's really slick and there's a, a lot of attributes to it. But originally it was just used to make soap harder. And they still do it that way over in the Middle East, and I'm sure in Africa and probably India, and um, in what we would say were poor third world country, they're actually making better soap for us than we are. I mean, we make good soap because our chemicals that we use are more pure and more accurate, but they make the basic soap. And it's, yeah, it's been around for at least uh, three or 4,000 years that way. And they've found 
2,500, 3,000 year old bars in places like pyramids. Jeez. I mean, imagine. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, that's cool. Yeah. We hang out with people that do a lot of survival stuff and do shows. And one of those guys was in Southern Argentina and a place where they tried to have cowboys and cows. And he goes into uh, a shed that's fallen apart or some kind of cabin or something. And there's a piece of beef fat sitting on the shelf. That's nobody's been around there for over 25 years, but it's still stable. Hmm. So we've changed everything in our culture. So it's not as good as it was. Yeah. It's like soap in the, um, there's stories about ureic acid. Um, there used to be urine collectors in London to help use that in the soap making process I don't even want to learn how to do that. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. Well, they have urine tanning. In I know. The East. Yep. And when it rains, and you got a urine tan jacket, it stinks like a pee-filled porta potty, and it's uh-uh. pretty bad. So wait, what? Uh, I remember you telling me one time in a class, you we were talking about the the history of soap, and you had said so all of that stuff that dawn, that ivory, that all that stuff. You said that was a detergent for your body. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. If you call the FDA. Email the FDA, text message the FDA, or just go and look it up at the FDA. You got to go bug the FDA. Nope. It says that soap is an alkali and an acid, an oil and a lye. Anything else is not soap. So in the my history of soap making, back in the 90s when I first started doing it, and I made cold process soap, had a business, and all you had to put on your label was the common names of the products that you had by quantity in the product. The only question was, did you put water at the top or at the bottom? Because you probably use more water than any oil, but most of the water gets evaporated out in cold process. So that was the only concern. Then people got active And it doesn't take much. I mean, minuscule amount. Large companies pay a lot of attention to what's going on. So then the, you know, the big corporations lobbied, I'm guessing Congress or the FDA, FDA, they changed the rules. So you had to put the scientific note uh, names on there because all soap makers would do is say, read my label, then read the label of the soap that you have in your house or in the store and they would have all the chemical names. So in an effort to make it look so we were using chemicals, we had to use the scientific names of the oils. All right. So we got by on that one for a while. And then the next thing people started doing was making deodorant and lotion bars without water so you didn't have to use humicants and surfacants and preservatives and you could actually make a good lotion i put mine in a deodorant container and it's a lotion bar simple recipes and so then people would say can you make me a sunscreen or a sunblock well a lot of us grew up in the 60s where all the really cool movie stars were lifeguards and they had uh, white noses as sunblock so you use titanium and zinc oxide. 
And if you want to color your soap and make it vibrant, you use titanium dioxide. If you've ever eaten a cake that's been commercially made and has white frosting, odds are you've eaten titanium dioxide. The next step was to say that titanium dioxide could cross the cell barrier. Well, it can. It's used in industry, but it has to be like nano-sized particles that cost a ridiculous amount of money per ounce. And no soap maker is going to do that. Number one, they probably don't have access to it. But they start rumors like that that you can't say yes or no to. Can titanium dioxide cross the cell barrier? Yes. Do you have titanium dioxide in your soap? Yes. It's been the same way forever. Do you use lye to make your soap? Yes. You can't make soap without using lye. Right. Is there lye in your soap? No. You have a new molecule, which is a soap, through a process called saponification, so it looks entirely different. There's no lye in your soap, but you use lye to make soap. You can't make lye. So it's this twisted conversation that we have and people, instead of trying a product and listening to a conversation, they listen to what somebody is telling the people at the FDA or people in Congress. Um, Kind of a side note, um, because of the cancer treatment that I've had, I had to take a kidney class. So um, met a young lady been on dialysis for 15 years she's only 30 years old she shows two muffins the muffins one was 20 to 50 cents more than the other month one was heart healthy but they were the same exact muffin Hmm. made by the same exact company literally no differences in the two nope the only difference was the label and what made one heart healthy was distinguishing the fats how much saturated fat how much unsaturated fat how much cholesterol and calling them all out on the left the label that was the requirement it's the same muffin but if they set things up to make us think things are better for us when they're not really better right you know, you tell you tell somebody that a story about everybody has a little common sense about lie and like and burn you. If you've got somebody that's making a soap that's full of chemicals that aren't really good for you, because kind of the way they look at chemicals, you can look at lawsuits like uh, Roundup and stuff like that on things that cause cancer. Well, they go and say, well, the human body can handle this much. That's the threshold, and in our products, we only have this much, a real small amount. But they fail often to have a conversation of accumulating over time in the body. And we don't have conversations about that in our cosmetics. Instead, people go out and get Botox and eyelid lifts and uh, all kinds of surgeries, but we never take a look at how we're really abusing our body with stuff that's made in the laboratory instead of uh, using natural things and maybe seeing how those work for us. Yeah. So that's happened a lot in the, the soap industry. And I'd say now there's probably a couple hundred thousand 
soap makers in the United States and Canada. Yeah. Well, I haven't bought soap since I learned how to make it. I think that's probably because I have like 50 or 60 bars sitting around my house though all the time. But I'm like you, I give it away and I make it. And when I teach classes on for people how to make it, I would just, there's random people walking by and being like, what are y'all doing? I'm like, oh, I'm teaching people to make soap. Like here, come to our next soap making class. This is what kind of the product you'll get. And I just hand it out. But it makes me feel like, um, I don't know. It. What's the point? I, I guess my, my question is now, like, you know, you go back to a grocery store and you're looking at the soap aisle and there's all these like, what are they? Um, ocean. So what's that red company called? Um, God dang, I can't think of that company. Uh, Old Spice. Old Spice. Old Spice. Old Spice. Ah. And they have like the Gillette soaps and they got, and when you do look at the ingredient list on the back of there, it is a bunch of things you cannot pronounce. But the curious, the, the curious aspect of me is, well, if all those chemicals cost all this money, why not just make a really simple product? Like what is all that stuff? Like what is the point in having so much of that as ingredient in your soap when all it really is is some oil mixed with water and potash you know it's simple it's human simple human behavior if soap if all you wanted was a good bar of soap that was good for your skin cleaned your body and it lasted a long time to be cost lasted long enough to be cost effective if that was your goal to make a good bar of soap, how fast would we get there? Boom. Yeah, I would say pretty fast. Yeah, we get there overnight. The problem is people want to continue to make money. The purpose is not to make meeting or to make a good quality product. Their purpose is they're in business to make money. So human beings will chase glittery things. You know, there's people that say how terrible it was that we traded um, baubles and pieces of glass and beads to Native Americans or gave them whiskey um, for land and pelts, probably not for land, but for pelts and hides that had great value. Yeah. Oh, man, I wouldn't trade my hides and stuff like that. Exactly. But the thing is, is all we did was take advantage of human behavior. And that's not all we did. That's wrong to say that. But we took advantage of human behavior. There's the same people running companies that are doing the same thing. If Old Spice make the best soap, how much soap would Lifeboy sell? They just get out of the soap business. If it perpetuates itself. We talk about um, addicts and whatever they're addicted to. They're always looking for that next level up. Well, we can get real distracted as human beings just by looking for the next best thing. I mean, we get older. Our bodies smell different. You ever, when I was a kid, I had knee surgery, and we broke out of our rooms, me and another guy in our wheelchairs. We didn't know we'd actually been moved in the hospital, and we went down from the third floor to the second floor. Well, they had moved us to a geriatric wing, and the orthopedic was only the third floor. So I'm 14 or 15 years old, and I come out of the elevator with my uh, sidekick, and old people smell different. Um, the ratio of death in human beings is 100%, and we're headed towards that end all the time. And at the same time, we're trying to 
avoid it and our foibles and failures and um, our comparison of ourselves to other people. And we'll pay billions of dollars a year to schmaltz that up and look better. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I worked in a retirement home when I was 14, and ooh. I know for a fact it's a unique smell when you go in to, I know, I know exactly the smell you're talking about. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I wasn't like uh, adverse to it or anything. It just was, I just picked it up. It was like it, on my radar and awareness. Yeah. So I, I can, I see what you're saying. So it's just the fact that companies are making, these these products and they're marketing really really well to say hey you know you can either be younger you know be more active obviously that's what the old spice uh, ads would be about uh, you can right be a sailor yeah yeah and, and i promise you old spice ain't gonna make you a sailor i've spent a winter in how, the how long were you sea, in the navy uh almost four years yeah um on a destroyer and spent summers in uh or near guantanamo bay cuba and winters up in the north sea and I promise you that 90% of the people that use Old Spice deodorant, especially the new commercials where the women and the man argue about the body wash, uh, those folks ain't going to the North Sea in the wintertime on a ship called a tin can. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. Um, and I wouldn't go on the ships that are on the picture of Old Spice. The thing is, is they can distract us to keep trying to look better you know, when I was a kid growing up, the conversation was about keeping up with the Joneses. They can manipulate us to keep us busy trying to be something that we're not rather than using that time to be the best we can be. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and they make money doing it. And we happily pay them. We need to take responsibility for it. If we stop buying products, you know, you hear it every time some social change or political change, people say, I'm going to vote with my money. They rarely ever do. They don't have the ethics and they don't possess the moral character to do it. And they don't possess the moral character to go out and train their kids how to, to make soap or how to get clean vegetables or how to get clean meat, how to make their own food make their own bread it takes time and they'd be stuck looking at each other and spending time with each other or being in a class getting to know people where you came from where you're going and why you're doing things and learn a skill it's easier to chase a rainbow and end up no better off and you really um, lose your ability to be healthy by following that. And I hope I don't get sued here, but the only thing um, I know that Irish Spring Soap is good for is repelling rodents from climbing up the axles of your car when you're parked in the woods in Colorado. <laughs> um, How the heck did you figure that out? Um, because I heard it as a rumor on the internet and then I tried it. Um, Going up around Crestone and, and so they were the rodents were chewing like the cables and getting into your car for food yeah. or making well, nests? they got up there for warmth for warmth yeah. yeah 
So it, it was basically like slippery or it was the smell? It's the smell. Really? Yeah, it's definitely the chemicals that are wow. in it. What's rat poison? Chemicals. Yeah. Was that arsenic? Is that what it is? What's uh, rat poison? Oh, arsenic or strychnine? Strychnine. Oh, yeah. I think it's strychnine. And that's a weird thing about gatherings. Um, I got... There's always exceptions to every rule. So gathering people are great. Um, down here in Austin, uh, being part of a... Oh, man, this is going to get me shot. Being part of a diversity training team for the Austin Fire Department more than a dozen years ago, had a Hispanic chief walk up to me, a uh, fire chief, and walk up to me and say, you know, when you get a 1,000 people in any organization, you have every aspect of society represented, Yeah. no matter how much you run the interview process. I said, all right, chief, thanks. And I thought about it for a while, and he gave me the name of a book, which I never followed up on because it scared the bejesus out of me, knowing how many organizations I'd been involved in or worked at that had over a 1,000 people. Wow. And then I had to wonder about which one of those aspects of society I was. So you're going to always meet people at gatherings, especially the bigger they get, that may not agree with you or may seem odd. But you can still grow from that. It's like the guy that told me about um, why am I using essential oils and not good fragrance oils. So... I've met some unique people, and I don't know where I was going with that, but somebody challenged me um, on soap making. What the heck did they say? Well, you were talking about how <clears throat> the essential oils guy challenged you, but you were you know, getting aspects of society together, right? And yeah. What, what aspect are you of society is yeah. where you were going. So... Um, Oh, man. What? I met a woman that told me that this doing this was all wrong and costly. And the soap making? Basically, yeah. Or the gatherings? No, the soap making. Oh, I was okay. still using chemicals, and it was still a process, and I was still... Um, what was she doing? Using potash and taking twelve hours to make soap? No, she was buying commercial soap. Oh, come on! How does she even fare to say anything to you? But you always continue. You'll meet people that um, kind of push you off, just like you will in society. You'll get caught um, by a flashy bobble somewhere in a sign. I guess the best example I have was when I was just out of the Navy and tried to go to a community college, one of the things we went through was politics and debates. And without getting into the Nixon-Kennedy debate, my favorite one was an ad in the paper in some place like South Dakota or Wyoming, um, a rural predominant state. And the ad said that... The guy's opponent had been seen masticating in public. <laughs> However, <clears throat> that shows how the human mind works. Yeah. Masticating, for those of you who don't know, is chewing. 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 
So there's also macerating, which is crushing with your hands. There you go. And that happens at gatherings and you can actually learn how to do that and the benefits of doing that in the mortar and pistol yeah. and what that brings out in plants. Correct. So instead of being trapped in um, looking things from a, how, how do I look good or how do I not look bad? People basically operate from those two frames of mind, you know? Oh, I see what you're saying. You got, uh, narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, but for the majority of us, we operate on two different planes. We either want to look good and that drives us in our life, or we don't want to look bad and that drives us in our life. Wow. That's human behavior. So advertisers know that they can get that. That's why there's well over a billion dollars spent every year in the United States on silicone. Now, being a cancer patient and, and having had a wife that had breast cancer, I understand that there are uses for that that are positive. I understand the struggles for some types of cancer. Oh, I see what you're saying. But there's a lot of money spent on trying to look good mm -hmm. for the same process some people's motivation are to look good and others are just not to look bad. Yeah. And that's why we go and there's 35 kinds of deodorants. And in each one of those kinds of deodorants, there's five or six different modes of deodorant or there's five or six different modes of soap. You go in and just go down the soap aisle. You won't see something called soap unless you go like the Trader Joe's or um, good earth or uh, sprouts or something where they have cold process soap sitting out and you guys should really contact me and do hot process soap and I'll tell you why it's better. But if you go down the soap aisle, it says things like moisturizing bar yeah. and cleansing bar. Mm -hmm. So they just snag people on either wanting to look good oh. or not look bad. I want to look moisturized. I want my dry skin. I'm, 40 years old, I'm starting to get wrinkles. I want them to go away. You can't moisturize your skin. Yeah, It's not biologically possible. But they can say that. You can't, the only way you get moisture into your skin cells is by staying hydrate, hydrated. You learn that real quick in the deserts of Arizona. But what they can do is seal the cells to keep them, help keep the moisture in. The problem is, is what are you doing that with? You could probably do it best with something like lithium grease, but is that something that you want to put on your face? So we're in a transition here where, as a society, we're talking a lot about resources, but we need to have a cradle-to-grave conversation about resources, just like the guy talking to me about um, using essential oils. What's the cradle-to-grave process on that? Mm -hmm. And we don't have that conversation. I mean, when I grew up, plastic bags were the solution to the environmental problem of paper grocery sacks. Right. And now it's a plague on the earth. But have we changed it? No. We haven't changed it. There's a few places that tried to catch on. Austin's uh, one. 
They don't give you those plastic bags anymore. Yep. Bring your own bag. Bring your own bag. Yep. They'll sell them to you now. I'm sure H-E-B is making a killing on selling those bags because people forget them all the time. Yep. (laughs) Go to a gathering and make your own bag. Yeah, but that was a great, what all all that you said, that was a great uh, answer to the very, you know, one of the very first original questions, which is why is, you know, Irish Spring and all them doing what they're doing? And that's a great way to explain that is that there's people out there who want to hide and then there's also people who want to let everybody know so i and and i'm totally after you said that i was like dang i think those i think i'm the person who doesn't want people to see that i'm doing bad you know instead of me because it's almost like a half empty half full pessimist optimist thing but no matter what the company is getting both Yep, they'll get you coming and going. Yeah, so it doesn't matter if you're choosing to hide or if you're choosing to project, they've got a product for you. Which is, I mean, I you know I, I find it hard to like bash capitalism because capitalism to me is like done, like I look around the world and I'm like, where does all that money come from that's given to all those nations? No. Oh, it's come from like nonprofits. Well, where's that based out of? Oh, it's based out of America or it's using the capitalist system in some way. But there, there's been so much benefit and alleviation of so much through people working hard and developing the, um, you know, products that they want. Like Natureversity is a great example. Like I didn't like the public kind of school system and the way it was set up. So rather than go, okay, let's copy that model and just slap a new name on it. I was like, no, let's really change how kids are learning out here. Let's change what they're doing. Let's change how they're engaging with each other. Let's change the roles and these dynamics of the instructors and the facilitators with the kids. And now it's a great service. It's a great product. And so I I, I don't know. Well, there's a couple <laughs> things that you said that I'd like to touch on. Number one is natureversity. Um, having been a boy, having had a father, having had sons, having had grandsons, one of the things that natureversity does, there's a whole conversation, there has been my entire life since the 1950s about men and boys and what they do. The problem, one of the big problems that I see you discuss, and it shows up in the students and the instructors, that you bring to my class is boys get to rough and tumble play. And you can see at the gatherings, there's uh, tomboys that are girls that show up for more rough and tumble play. And there's boys that show up for more nurturing things with a group of girls. But the thing is the boys get to play outside. They get to burn off energy. They actually get to do, what psychiatrists tell us and have told us for as long as psychiatrists have been around studying rats, that they need to do that to develop properly as a human being. So just like in making soap, they've tried to um, circumvent that in education. They think they know better and that that's just some social thing that's happened and we don't need to pay attention to it. That's not accurate and you're producing results that show that. The other thing is capitalism. What I'm talking about is not capitalism. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about marketing. Mm-hmm. Capital In capitalism, you make the best product, and either you make it or you fail. You get marketing people involved, 
and then they try to twist it so you don't look at product, product for product. You look at the shiny baubles. People don't have whole conversations. We have partial conversations that are trying to guide us one way or the n- another. Politicians, car salesmen, refrigerator salesmen, they don't just sit down and compare the technical or professional or capacity of anything. They show you the shiny baubles. I think capitalism, capitalism works at gatherings. Instructors come, they provide a product and a service, and they either make enough money to come back again or they don't. They have to go back home, redefine their skills or what they're doing so they can come back on a very simple basis, do a service or a product that actually serves people and gives them something that they can grow with. That's basic capitalism. If they don't provide a good product, it gets around really quick and people don't go to their classes. Yeah. What I'm bashing is the marketing that they do and how the people who are supposed to be representing us allow that to happen. Mm. And it hurts. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Hurts poor people worse than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, because it's misleading and it's actually causing further health issues. You know, earlier, I think when you were saying, you know, does this product bake the. Uh, uh, break the cell barrier i think what you were referring to is is it leaching into my skin are all these yeah. chemicals leaching into my skin right which could then cause health issues and cause more um debt you know to get those taken care yeah. of and so there's uh, i have have or had depending on which oncologist you talk to um incurable follicular lymphoma presenting stage two non-aggressive Went through a lot of chemotherapy, um, even did some radiation, which wasn't really necessary, but nobody knew the whole story in the beginning, the first few weeks. So I did chemotherapy, and then I went back and um, had seen my oncologist that did my transplant and was struggling with some body pains and aches and some digestive problems, uh, significant weight loss in a short period of time. And I said, you know, I could do another transplant if I had to. I mean, that's the thing that saved my life. They said I was incurable and I'm still here. Mm-hmm. If I had made it half the time that I was, I would have I exceeded my life expectancy. So I'm really grateful. But what she said was, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it. Mm. It's hard because the chemicals that they use to kill the lymphoma, the rest of my healthy body can only handle so much. Of yeah. It. So kind my my works. heart, my kidneys, my lungs, my yeah. liver, they can't handle that same amount of those chemicals again because some of them are still in the tissues in my body. We do that with almost all the chemicals that we use to make artificial products, whether it's plastic, deodorant, or soap. All the lawsuits that are out there, like Roundup or the Camp Lejeune stuff, are because chemicals stay in our body. You know, we sit there and say uh, our body cells reproduce and die on such a great scale that we're not the same person that we were. 
Well, that's true. We have the same DNA, but that replication has a cost to it. We all look older. We're all closer to death. And pretty soon those cells don't do the work that they did a long time ago. And when we put ourselves in an environment that's toxic or we put stuff that is toxic on our bodies at one level, but at the level we put it on our bodies may not be, we risk the idea of that stuff building up and staying in our body. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's <clears throat> grease, oil, soap, laundry detergent. Yeah, I mean, you get we, too much of anything. Right. You know, on oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> Hyponatremia is when you take too much water in and you yep. deplete the sodium levels in your serum. So and you can drown. Yeah, exactly. So it's all it's all to be looked at with, you know, I wouldn't say skepticism, but just with like healthy awareness. Like what I don't know. I, I wouldn't Pay say attention. Yeah, well, I say awareness, but I'm talking about like every facet, whether it's like knowing yourself, like knowing what it is that your needs are. And usually, you know, we talked to Dave Holiday a lot over at Sky Earth and we talked about pure eternal truths and what are the things that unite us all and water and food and fire and community and shelter and all that. Like that's the easy stuff. But just like you said, now there's a couple paths that we're going to take to meet those needs. And do we want to, you know, hide it or do we want to project it? you know, and vice versa. But I think that no matter what, going and taking a class, whether it be making soap, making a bow, anything, you get to learn a little bit more about, I always say it like this, three things. If you, when I was younger growing up, I didn't like talking to girls. I just didn't like doing it. I was like very intimidated and, you know, insecure and all that. But eventually I heard this person say this thing, which was, look, man, Every time you don't go talk to a, a good lady, this is what's going to happen. You're going to miss out on three things in life. You're going to miss out on something that you get to know about her, something that you get to know about yourself potentially, and then something that you get to know about the two of you together. And so every time you don't do something, anytime you, anytime you don't take a step, you could potentially be missing out on a lot. And the moment I realized that, I was like, I'm going to talk to everybody. I'm going to say everything and I can't, and, and obviously not like being a bonehead or childish, but like just asking questions, doing this. And I think through that, it taught me how to sit down and have a conversation with people. And cause I've definitely had people who want to come on these podcasts, but I'm like, I don't even know if I could hold a conversation with you for 10 minutes, let alone an hour, hour and a half. But, um, I think just bringing in awareness about yourself, what it is that you makes you tick, what are your needs and, Dave, you've taught me a lot about the awareness of myself and all of it. So I just want to say thank you for being a mentor and being an inspiration to these kids and the staff. And they talk highly about you. And I'm sure some of them are going to want to. I don't understand. Y'all get out of here. <laughs> By the way, when you come to the classes and you meet Dave, you're going to meet a whole different person than is on this podcast. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> He's like, no, don't say that. Uh, don't put that energy out there. But um, yeah. I want to just say thank you again for coming on the podcast. And yeah, is there anywhere that we can find you next? Where, where are you going to be? Um, let's see, what's the next gathering that I'll be at? I'll probably try to make it to winter count this year. Um, Which will be February of 2023. Yes. Uh, tickets go on sale November 1st, everybody. There you Get go. Get your winter count tickets. Um, 
and I would recommend if it's your first time for any any of the gatherings that we've talked about, whether it's Winter Count, Rabbit Stick, Sky Earth, Between the Rivers, Fire to Fire, fire. Fire to Fire 2 if they happen to run two gatherings, buy the tickets early. Yeah, you save money. Yeah, you save money and... um, we're in a time when people are trying to figure out how to get outside and do new and different things. Um, can find me probably from the dis- instruction instructors lists on the gatherings that we've talked about. Um, I, I want to work on making or working with some young guys to make better products for men. Right now, that's the only growth industry. Um, in the soap making market and it irritates me how they're trying to do the look good or not look bad marketing crap with men it just irritates me to no end (laughs) so i'm going to help somebody like i said i don't really want a retail business my man my background is working in manufacturing of uh, different kinds so i like doing that um and i i want to manufacture products for men very good. And teach people how to make soap. Well, it has been an honored guest. I mean, an, an honor to have you as a guest. And uh, thanks so much, Dave. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Very cool. We're going to do this again. Don't worry. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. Take care.